Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, there was a lot of boxing to enjoy on Saturday. Uh, plenty of in-ring action and uh, interviews, you know, with various boxing figures in between fights. Uh, I, I, was, I thought, I don't know about you, but I thought it was great to see Keith Thurman mm-hmm. um, at the desk chatting with Brian Custer uh, during the Showtime Championship Boxing Broadcast. And big ups to to Cust, who pulled double duty all night there um, in, in Florida. Yeah. It's his, his ability to do just about anything in terms of sports broadcasting uh, continues unabated. But, you know, it's good to see Thurman because he's always an entertaining fellow. But, you know, you know, during the conversation, Thurman discussed his future and, well, making it clear, he saw it as remaining at 147 pounds. He did say that if there were a title attached, he'd go to 154 or even 160. And he asked, has anyone ever done that before? I'm not sure that anyone's gone straight from 147 to win a title at 160. That's a good question, Keith. It got me to wondering, has anyone ever regained the heavyweight championship or even won it three <laughs> times or held titles in three weight classes or retired undefeated? How could we ever know? Right. Yeah. Uh, hey, Keith, maybe try cracking open a boxing history book one time. Ah, see what I did there? I see what you did there. Uh, now, perhaps, Keith, you've uh, maybe heard of a fella by the name of Sugar Ray Robinson? Maybe? Uh, although, in fairness, there was no uh, junior middleweight class right. yet at the time. So you, you could make a case that, while not properly fully defining the parameters, Thurman wasn't totally wrong to pose the question. But even more so, in fairness, I would say this. It's live TV. You know, I, I Exactly. I should never screw up a historical fact in an article that I write and research and proofread. But on a live broadcast, we should probably be forgiving. So if Keith Thurman forgot all about the existence of Ray Robinson, I will let it slide one time. Very nice. Yes. I will say also that Keith, who is a good dude, hmm. knows more about boxing history than I know about winning a world title. So That's true. There's that. <laughs> and actually, he might know more about boxing history, seeing as I once spent part of a podcast segment discussing how much better he was at one at 140 than at 147, even though he, in fact, never fought at 140. <laughs> right. I remember so, that now. Yeah. What the hell do I know about anything? <laughs> uh, and also, I, uh, I didn't get a chance to watch the pre-show on YouTube, but I know that Keith broadcast the whole thing with Brian Campbell. And after two hours of talking to BC, Absolutely. totally understandable if you're a little thrown off, a little mentally fatigued. So add that to the list of justifications for a minor slip up by Keith Thurman. Yes, exactly. I suspect he had fewer slip ups in those couple of hours than we'll have in the upcoming 55 minutes or so. So <laughs> That's uh, probably a safe bet. I'm, wherever <laughs> you're setting the line for number of slip ups by us, I'm taking the over. However, through the power of editing, the audience might not know about any of our slippers. There you go. Exactly. All right. Um, this week on the podcast, the man who gave the world the term Four Princes, which really sounds like a much more dramatic kind of contribution <laughs> to, to the world than it really is, um, will, as directed by his podcast partner, uh, give the world a countdown of the top five fights that can be made with any of the Four Princes or indeed any non-prince type fighters in the same weight division. <laughs> um, we'll also discuss news involving a fighter very directly connected to them, Vasily Lomachenko. We will crack some jokes about KSI versus Swarms. And we'll reveal the tweet <laughs> of the week. Um, but the bulk of the show this week will be dedicated to post-fight analysis. As we said, there's a lot to look back on from Saturday. And we'll start with a heavyweight title rematch in the country that elicits a sigh when we have to say its name. But Alexander Usyk repeated his victory over Anthony Joshua. This time, at least officially, 
by split decision. Yeah, there was one human on the planet, as far as my scouring of the internet revealed, who scored this fight for Joshua, and he happened to be one of the three judges at ringside. Glenn Feldman handed in a 115-113 card for AJ, thankfully overruled by two cards of 115-113 and 116-112 for Usyk. I, too, had it 116-112, and because we traded Twitter DMs immediately after the fight, Kieran, I know you had it 117-111, but I'm hesitant to dwell on the scoring here. The right fighter won. I want to get your take on the action in the ring. We both didn't think Joshua could win a boxing match against Usyk, but he tried to anyway. He came out bending his knees and boxing calmly and under control, and he had some success in the first three rounds. But then Usyk's speed and punch variety and craftiness and upper body movement started taking over. In the eighth and ninth rounds, though, Joshua got more aggressive, especially to the body, and surged only for Usyk to have a brilliant 10th round and land almost at will against a tiring Joshua and take over once again. After 12 rounds, the fighters held up the Ukrainian flag together. Then Michael Buffer read two fine scorecards and one atrocious one. And then Joshua commandeered the mic and went on a bizarre rant that concluded with a trio of champ champs. Uh, Usyk moves to 20-0 with 13 KOs, and he retains his belts and wins the vacant ring magazine heavyweight title, while Joshua slips to 24-3 with 22 knockouts. Break it down for me, Kieran. What left you impressed or unimpressed with either fighter, and what ultimately separated Usyk and made him the winner once again? I don't think anything that either man did, at least during the 12 rounds of boxing, left me unimpressed. Um, I, I, I thought this was a high-quality contest, and there were some good close rounds in there, especially early. Um, you know, I, I think Joshua came in actually with a pretty decent plan. He, he didn't want to just come charging forward and walking into Usyk counters. He, he wanted to sort of box his way in and then impose himself, but, you know, Usyk made that, you know, very difficult for him. You, you you could say, you know, perhaps, you know, it would have been nice to see Joshua doing some of that body work that he showed in the ninth round earlier in the fight. Um, would have been nice to have seen some of it afterward, too. But the fact that he didn't was down to Usyk. You know, Usyk's really, you know, his movement is, is, is so erratic. It's simultaneously herky-jerky and smooth at the same time, which which sounds kind of intuitive. But it, it's smooth in that it's seemingly effortless and mm -hmm. appears to use very little energy. But it's herky-jerky in that there's, there's no clear pattern to it, you know, it, which makes him terribly difficult to time and, and, and to figure out what it is that he's doing and where he's going to be. Um, and it's constant. And that's so unusual for a, for a heavyweight. You know, lower weight fighters are used to being up against opponents who have constant lateral movement. But, but heavyweights aren't. And, and, and it's more difficult. It's harder work for heavyweights to keep up with somebody like that. Um, Look, I, I think AJ deserves so much credit for everything he's achieved in this sport. He had very few amateur fights in the grand scheme of things, a little over 40 amateur bouts, including the Olympics, which he won. And then he's had, where, where are we at now? Like 20, what is he, 27 and three, something like that 20, now? 24 as a pro. and three, so 24 and three. fights, yeah. 27 fights, um, which isn't a great deal. Um, and during that, he's, he's the Olympic gold medalist. He's won the heavyweight title a couple of times. He had that tremendous night against Vladimir Klitschko. But all of that said, he's never been the smooth, effortless, natural kind of boxer that, say, a Tyson Fury is or indeed an Alexander Usyk is or even that a Lennox Lewis was. I mean, even at his best, his legs can look a bit stiff. His movement's unconvincing. So many ways, a guy like Usyk is a nightmare proposition for him. Um, all that said... He was doing reasonably well through three quarters of the fight. Um, 
as you mentioned, I had him farther behind than, than most people. I think I had it as wide as it is possible to have it, really, for, for Usyk. But, you know, with the championship round approaching, or the last quarter of the fight, I should say, approaching, most folks probably had him down five rounds to four, right. maybe even up a point. Um, Glenn Feldman, Feldman had, had him up 120 through 108 through nine, <laughs> but that's a different matter. Right. Look, um, I gave Usyk four of the first five rounds, could easily have given AJ one more. I thought rounds six and seven were awfully close. Um, then, of course, you know, AJ had a good eight and nine, but he must have felt he was closing in on a victory at that point, especially after the ninth round. And he must have felt, oh, my goodness, my plan is coming together. I've, I've got, gotten it together just right. I boxed. I kept myself in this fight. Now I'm turning it up. I'm, I'm hurting into the body. I might be about to stop him here. And then for it just to be snatched from him, if you were, if you like, I mean, I think that goes a long way to explaining his emotional outburst afterwards as he, as he really struggled to process what had happened to him. Um, yeah, I did think he was comfortably behind personally, but it felt like he was closing the gap there. You know, he must have felt that he'd gone through the worst, was getting his timing and distance down. And then Usyk turned everything around with that remarkable 10th round. Um, how did he do that? I mean, first of all, I don't think he was as badly hurt in that ninth round as it perhaps appeared. Yeah. Um, he looked at the referee a couple of times to indicate he thought the body punches were straying a bit low, but his gaze, he was calm rather than pleading. He felt the punches. I'm sure he was hurt a bit, and he didn't want to feel any more of them than he had to. But he's an insanely strong guy, and he was able to recover during the minute's rest. And, and I think what was also important is that he hadn't expended as much mental energy to that point as Joshua. He'd been moving a tremendous amount. He had to have absurd levels of physical conditioning, but you know, he was able to do it and keep going because very little of his movement's wasted and, and it's so fluid. And, and I think he just had the physical and mental resources to just dig deep and come right at Joshua. And, and Joshua had probably used up more energy, both mental and physical, than, than Usyk at that point. And his expression sometimes belied that during the course of the fight. Um, and he was just less resistant than Usyk. Um, I want to share the tweet of the week from yeah. our buddy Stephen Breadman Edwards, hmm. who wrote, um, When we see great fighters consistently rise to the occasion, we take it for granted. Usyk casually overcomes his opponents. He doesn't pitch shutouts, but he doesn't let himself lose two rounds in a row. He's not always A+, but he's never a C. He's a money fighter. Usyk could live in any era. Um, and, and I think that's true, you know, and at the end of the day, as much as Joshua was clearly hurting and he was confused and he was lashing out and trying to make sense of everything, I don't think he has anything to feel like ashamed about. Uh, he put in, in some respects, the most rounded and polished performance of his career. Could he have opened up more and earlier? Sure. But he, he was keen not to open up so much to give Usyk the opportunity to come back at him and that's what happened at the end of the fight right after he had the ninth round where he opened up the way everybody wanted him to Usyk came right back at him and had his biggest round of the fight should he have gone for it earlier uh, Joshua and gone out in a shield maybe but I, that's easy for us to say I mean rightly or wrongly Usyk still needed to win that 12th round on the official cards to get the win so Joshua can argue maybe his strategy wasn't that far off but Look, the fact is that Usyk is exceptional, and and I, I like to think I've been on the Usyk train for a long time, and um, a little bit of of back padding here. I'm sure I've said this before, but um, in 2017, April 2017, I interviewed Usyk in Washington D.C. or just outside of the MGM National Harbor. Mm -hmm. um, he and Lomachenko and Alexander Vojdek were about to like co-headline a card, and I said two things to him after my one-on-one -on -one ended. The first thing. 
that I wanted to share with him because I've been wanting to share with it, it with him for a while. <laughs> yes, and you know, what's I, coming. I know what's coming, but you proceed. Coming. Yes. Is that Usyk is a Nupiat Eskimo for walrus penis, which I just couldn't keep it to myself anymore. And, and fortunately he found that amusing when I Good. told him. Good. And the other thing was, dude, you know, you're really big for a cruiserweight. You should fight a heavyweight. I said, so there you go. It was all down to me. Wow. Entirely down to me. There was no way he was thinking boxing about boxing history. There was no way he was thinking about no. it before that. Absolutely no way they would have had conversations about it if not for that casual aside that <laughs> yes. I tossed in after our interview. Um, but anyway, so so that's what that's what I think. I, I feel that neither man has anything to feel bad about. I think neither man did anything to unimpress me during the fight. I just think that Usyk, at the end of the day, is better. But what about you? I mean, what stood out to you about either man? Did you, do you disagree? Did Joshua fight the wrong fight again, or? Does it not really matter? Just Usyk, just too good for him. Does he just have his number? Um, I disagree slightly. I, I mean, I I think Joshua fought the wrong fight, but I think Usyk beats him eight or nine times out of ten, no matter how mm-hmm. AJ approaches it. Mm-hmm. But if he wanted to have that one or two out of ten chance of winning, he did need to be more aggressive. You know, like standing in the center of the ring and trying to outbox Usyk, even though AJ, as you said. Had some good moments doing that. He didn't get blown out. Um, I thought he won round two, clearly, while Mm -hmm. boxing mostly at ring center. That approach, that's going to get him beaten every time against an opponent this skillful. The Joshua we saw in round eight and nine, attacking to the body. Not just punching to the body, but really attacking, Mm -hmm. pressuring, bullying Usyk into the ropes uh, here and there. If he mixes that with some real power jabbing, which we didn't see a ton Mm -hmm. of from him, but... You know, is also generally willing to use his size and lean on the guy a little, fire yeah. hard. Now, he does that. He probably eats a whole lot of punches, and he probably gasses out after a few rounds if it doesn't yeah. work. So that's that's the caveat, and you basically hinted at that as well. That you know, he's got to be willing to risk getting stopped uh, fighting this way. But if he is willing to take that risk, I think he could have given himself a chance at a knockout mm-hmm. win. And I totally get not doing that in the first fight against Usyk because he wasn't quite sure what to expect and had his game plan and tried to deliver. I don't as much get not doing it here when he really had to come into this fight in win-at-all-cost mode. And just like you said, it's easy for me to say. I'm not the one who has to endure the physical pain and the emotional impact of getting stopped. But from a pure strategic standpoint of how Joshua has a sliver of a chance of beating Usyk, I think that's the one chance. Um, Anyway, uh, other observations about the fight and the respective performances. Usyk's upper body movement unlocked everything for him in this fight. It makes Joshua either miss or freeze. And when either of those things are happening, Usyk gets his openings. He's a masterful boxer with such confidence in what he does. And I don't buy that he's at a size disadvantage against Joshua or other heavyweights. It's reminding me of Manny Pacquiao when he got to his higher weights. He thrives against guys who are bigger and slower than he is. Uh, I think Usyk struggled as much in a couple of his cruiserweight fights as he has against AJ. Great. Um, Now, Joshua's punches when they landed did hurt him a bit more than any cruiserweight could. But whenever Usyk wasn't getting slightly hurt by a body shot, I'm sure he was delighting in how easy it was to see this big, slow guy's punches Mm -hmm. coming. Um, 
around the sixth round, we hit the AJ is thinking too much portion of the fight. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then and then his legs started looking real heavy to me in the seventh. Uh, he was yeah. standing up straighter instead of bending and dipping. All of which makes me want to give him huge credit for temporarily turning the fight around in the eighth and ninth when I thought he was ready to fade. But of course, bigger credit to Usyk for round 10. And I think it was a combination, that round 10, of him making adjustments and AJ shooting his load, to use uh, Brian and Rafe's favorite boxing phrase, uh, <laughs> in round nine. Uh, but one thing we can certainly agree on, uh, Usyk is a special fighter, a, a first ballot Hall of Famer, no question about it. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, Anthony Joshua, on the other hand, well, let me get your thoughts on where AJ goes from here. Uh, is there... Any chance he walks away after this, especially following that strange post-fight soliloquy? And if he's going to try to get back to the top, or, or at least back toward the top, what route would you advise? He doesn't. He didn't give the impression of being someone who's ready to fold things up and walk away. I mean, I guess it depends how you interpret what happened after the fight. I mean, for me, I thought his level of emotion suggested someone who remains deeply invested in the sport, but he knew how much was on the line here. And he won, he would have become a three-time heavyweight titleist, admittedly in a time where that's somewhat diminished in terms of meaning. But right. but he knew that losing would mean, well, what exactly? I mean, where indeed does he go now? Um, he performed well, just not well enough against someone who, like you said, is a slam dunk first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, he is... Depending on whether Tyson Fury is retired and how Deontay Wilder looks about against Robert Hellenius, still the second or third or fourth best heavyweight in the world, probably. Yeah. And yet he is, I suspect, at this time, especially in the hours and days immediately afterwards, feeling somewhat lost. It's a strange situation in which he finds himself having been at least in his mind, perhaps seemingly on the verge of victory, only to have to have it just taken away from him by a superior boxer. Um, you know, you have to feel for him a little bit. I, I'll never forget that Wembley fight with Klitschko. His image was everywhere before the fight. He was the talk of a, of a nation that loves boxing. The fight itself was terrific. The atmosphere was remarkable. He must have felt absolutely on top of the world. So I can barely imagine how he feels now, especially when put it all together and he's lost now what three of his last five right. um he must be wondering what the future holds whether it's all been worth it whether he's a failure whether he's let everyone down i suspect he's very confused and his self-belief is shattered so it's a tough time for him um and and a lot of arrows are going to be flying at him and, and and what he did after the fight only emphasizes that what he shouldn't do now is react on emotion he needs mm. to be cold and calculating about his next steps and not hurry into anything um there's already talk about him finally taking on wilder if wilder gets past hellenius and i understand that desire but i'm not sure that that should be the next thing for him um honestly what i think i'd advise him to do is fight outside of the uk for a while take mm. a little bit of pressure off himself um if he sticks with robert garcia and i don't see why he shouldn't fight on have a couple of california cards uh, in front of you know maybe smaller crowds fight at dignity health park or somewhere like that again solid but not necessarily world beating opposition except that you're on the outside looking in for now as much as you don't like it except that that's what where you're at right now let the situation play out with fury and Usyk, whatever that may be and we'll talk about that see how wilder looks gauge how the likes of joe joyce or daniel dubois are doing Whatever the temptation may be, don't rush. You've, you've done a lot 
in a short space of time, in a little over 10 years, gone from a guy with left fewer than 40 amateur fights to Olympic champion to heavyweight champion. It's been a lot. Take some time. Get yourself in the best possible shape mentally, physically, tactically for one more push for the brass ring. The story doesn't have to be over yet. He can still write a positive final chapter for himself. It may be that this is just as good as it gets for him, right? That he's taken himself as far as he possibly can, maybe farther than he had any right to. But I think, you know, I, I still think he has the opportunity to, you know, add a coda to his career just, you know, still. But um, as for Usyk, well, what does the future hold for him? Uh, do you expect to see Usyk against Fury? Um, and if not, well, he said, if I don't fight Tyson Fury, I'm not fighting at all. Do you believe that? And do you have any preferences over who you'd like to see him fight if it isn't Tyson Fury? Well, I'll start my response by saying for the umpteenth time, Tyson Fury is not retired from boxing. <laughs> now, I believe he genuinely doesn't know from day to day exactly what he wants, um, but he is going to fight again and probably reasonably soon. And yeah, I think against Usyk, um, it's easily the biggest and best fight for him. And his comments after this fight Sure don't sound like a retired fighter to me. Uh, he said in a social media post, to be honest with you guys, after watching that, the both of them were shite. It was one of the worst heavyweight title fights I have ever seen. Um, by the way, it most definitely was not. It was a it very was good not, fight. No. But uh, OK, back to Fury. Uh, it was bullshit. Come on. I would annihilate both of them on the same night. Fucking shite. Get your fucking checkbook out because the Gypsy King is here to stay forever. Kind of uh, flies in the face of being retired. Um I think Fury, intentionally or not, has given himself some extra negotiating leverage by making Usyk think he may be retired. So mm. if Usyk really wants the fight, he should make some concessions to convince the retired-ish Fury to do it. Um, I believe it'll happen. Uh, I make Fury a solid favorite, maybe about a, mm -hmm. a three-to-one favorite. Um, certainly Usyk, a, a live dog in there, the most live underdog of any heavyweight uh, that Fury could take on, probably. Um, I sure hope it happens. It'll make the brain stew of figuring out where to put these two guys on my pound-for-pound -pound list <laughs> a lot easier. Um, if it doesn't happen, you mentioned Wilder in, in the Joshua conversation. I would say for Usyk, Wilder is the biggest fight out there if he looks good against Hellenius. And there would be some intrigue there, master boxer versus historic puncher. Um, or I wouldn't mind... Usyk against a heavyweight around his own size who has some skill, like an Otto Valin. That That's a fine test, if not even close to being a huge fight. And by the way, I know I said at the very top of this segment that we shouldn't dwell on the terrible scorecard of Glenn Feldman, um, but I, I do want to double back to it for two reasons. First, I want to take a moment and crap on its round-by-round -round awfulness. Uh, he, he had AJ up five rounds to one through six. That's impossible and he gave the 12th to joshua which is also damn hard to figure um but the other thing i want to note is glenn feldman's absurd scorecard won me some serious pizzas um on the friday money punch special edition of the pod i mentioned loving the odds for Usyk by split decision in case he wins the fight but one judge hands in a crazy scorecard um i mentioned plus 1000 odds on that pod i later found it and bet it at plus 1200 now for only about two or three slices of pizza. But still, that wins a few pies at plus 1,200. And um, some of our listeners followed suit. Uh, one of them said he found it at plus 1,400. Um, I also took 
a nice odds boost from one site on Usyk by decision. Didn't have to be split, unanimous, whatever. Just Usyk by decision at plus 260. And I bet a couple of pizzas on that. Um, And my actual best bet from the pod, which was Usyk to win parlayed with under one and a half knockdowns. Now, I unfortunately didn't end up betting that because they removed it by the time I was placing my bets on Saturday. But I do get to claim a nice win there on my money punch best bet. Uh, But anyway. We have pizza to spare at the Raskin Estate these days. It was it was a good weekend of boxing <laughs> wagering for me. Um, and you know, before anybody goes rushing over to the Raskin household, it's 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 all, you know, non-cheese pizza right. at the Raskin household. Yes, vegan so. cheese spelled C H E E Z or whatever uh, they do right. to uh, pretend it's it's definitely not cheese. Right, indeed. Uh, <laughs> there was one other fight on that card that's worth discussing briefly: the co-feature, also in the heavyweight division, although. Not quite at the same skill level. Um, <laughs> in a battle of two huge unbeaten fighters, it was Philip Hergovich who remained unbeaten, getting off the canvas in round one to prevail by disputed unanimous 12-round decision over Zhang Zhilai. It was a fight that Zhang appeared to be controlling for much of the time, Hergovich seemingly struggling to cope with his, with his shot, solid shots. But as we saw against Jerry Forrest a while back, Zhang does not seem to have the best conditioning for a top-level pro boxer, and Hergovich came on as Zhang started to hit the wall. Ah, look, I don't think either man is likely to be a world champion or necessarily even a world title contender, but and the gulf of quality between this and the main event showed as much. But I'm going to be honest, I find myself rooting for Hergovich after his frankly adorable post-fight yes. interview. Um, Eric, how much, if at all, did this decision bother you, and did either fighter's stock rise or fall? So I had Zhang winning by a point, 114-113. I thought it was a 114-113 fight either way. The 115-112 scores for Hergovich were kind of a reach, I thought. But I wasn't bothered by the decision, in part because I leaned toward feeling the first-round knockdown shouldn't have been called a knockdown. He, He landed on the back of the head and then cuffed him down. And if no knockdown is called there, instead of 10-8 Zhang, it was probably headed for 10-9 Hergovic. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate result was fair enough. Fight could have gone either way. I have zero complaints. Now, I saw some people saying Zhang's stock went up significantly in defeat. I suppose it went up some because people were so skeptical of him. But for me, the bigger reaction is lowering Hergovic's stock in victory. He's not bad, but it's hard for me to imagine giving him next big thing consideration after yeah. seeing this. Uh, but he'll be okay. His wife is beautiful, as he can't stop telling us. <laughs> uh, I'll definitely take him praising his wife over and over into a microphone post-fight over Tyson Fury singing to his wife into a microphone <laughs> post-fight. As you said, it, w- it was adorable, honestly. Good for him. Uh, he- he's a lucky man, and not just in terms of judges and scorecards. <laughs> so while Usyk Joshua was far and away the biggest fight of the week, The best and deepest televised card was the Showtime Championship Boxing quadruple header from the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Hollywood, Florida, which gave us a little bit of everything. Uh, A thrilling nip-and-tuck 12-rounder, a one-sided 12-round boxing lesson, a mega prospect getting dropped and almost knocked out, and a late sub seemingly sending another fighter into retirement in the main event. And let's start there. Sergey Lipinets replaced Adrian Broner on five days' notice and absolutely dominated Omar Figueroa Jr., 
dropping him with a right hand in round two and meeting out steady punishment against the always defensively vulnerable Figueroa until Omar's dad, Omar Sr., called it off following the eighth round. Lipignet scores his first win since 2019, improves to 17-2-1 with 13 KOs, and reestablishes himself as a serious contender at 140 pounds. Figueroa, meanwhile, sinks to 28-3-1 with 19 KOs, and that's where his record may remain forever, as he said in the course of a tremendous post-fight interview, that his body has reached its limit. It's the end of the line for him in boxing. This was a strange viewing experience for me, Kieran, in that Lippinets dominated every step of the way, yet my eyes were always focused on mm. Figueroa. It felt throughout like he was the main story here. So I'll leave it up to you to decide whether you want to address Figueroa first or Lippinets first. But give me your thoughts on both of them in whichever order and on this fight ultimately as an alternative to Figueroa Broner. I'll take Lipinets first because I want to focus on Figueroa too. Okay. Um, uh, honestly, Lipinets did essentially what we thought he would do and, and what Lipinets generally does. Like, he came out fast. He came forward. He threw tons of punches. He worked body and head. He looked lively. He looked bright. He looked dangerous. Um, his punches were short and sharp and straight and, and tremendously accurate. He landed 46.7% of his power punches, which is, you know, amazing. Um, his defense was on point too. Uh, limiting Figueroa to just 44 total landed punches over the, over the entirety of the fight. But that had as much to do with Figueroa as with him, I think. Um, yeah, Lipinets just looks a different proposition at 140. Um, and I think he underlined that not only not be able to hang with the best of the best, although he put up a solid enough performance against Mikey Garcia and yeah. extended Boots Ennis deeper into a fight than anyone else had done. You know, he might be the best of the rest, or at least up there. Um, there are lots of options available at 140, and I think he's a pretty dangerous prospect for any of them. Um, but look, we thought this would be a better fight with Lipinets than with Bronner. As it turned out, in terms of competitiveness, it wasn't. And that's yeah. nobody's fault. Um, it, it's kind of heartbreaking to watch when any athlete suddenly can't do it anymore. And it's all the more difficult when that athlete is a professional boxer because of the danger that's associated with it. And honestly, as every minute was ticking past, uh, past around the fourth round, I was hoping that dad would step in and, yeah. and, and stop it. Um, because it was obvious it just wasn't there for him. Um, you know, it wasn't even just a bad night. You could just tell, as he said, his body just wasn't responding. And, you know, you wonder whether the weight issues he's had at times in his career, uh, you know, suggest that, how he's lived between fights might have contributed to his body just completely giving up the way it has done, perhaps at a little earlier than you might expect, but it just happens. You know, different people's bodies just decide, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this ridiculous lifestyle that you're putting me through. I'm not going to do it anymore. And that happens at different times. And with Figueroa, it, you know, it, it's, that it just happened to him on Saturday night, or maybe it was really happening to him against Abel Ramos and, and the other issues that he was experiencing kind of detracted from that. Um, whatever the case, it, it's gone for Figueroa. And I'm glad that Figueroa recognizes it. I hope he sticks with this decision. And I don't know him. I, I rather suspect he will, because, you know, it's one thing when you're disappointed with your performance, but you look back on the, the tape and you think, oh, if I'd done that differently, I could have done it. You know, I could have performed better or next time I can do this. I think it's a different thing where you say, as he did, everything went great and I did everything I could, but it just wasn't there. And and he sounded like a man who was not just realizing that 
it wasn't there for him on Saturday night, but was just tired uh-huh. after, as he said, I've been doing this 27 years. Um, he, he just seemed like he's ready to move on. And and um, I hope that whatever is next for him is good for him. And I hope he's able to focus on his other issues, his mental health issues, and, and, and have a really good and productive and, and healthy life going forward. But yeah, I was sitting looking at the TV and not just saying to myself, stop the fight, but it's over for Omar Figueroa. And uh, it's a bit of a tough watch, actually, and, and a reminder of what a brutal, cruel sport this is, I thought. Yeah, but but the tough watch kind of paid off by how great the post-fight interview was, I... how moving it was, and and sort of the surprise of him just dropping in there. Oh, by the way, I had a new daughter born today. Yeah. <laughs> what a whirlwind week for him. Uh, but no, I'm I I come away just really rooting for Omar Figueroa in life. Who would have thunk? <laughs> Eric Raskin I, is an Omar Figueroa stan now. I guess so. Uh, I ne- I I never knew an, an enough about him personally right, to have anything right. against him personally. It was just I felt he was overrated as a fighter and getting some gift decisions and all that. But uh, if he's done as a boxer, then I am done ragging on him as a boxer and turning entirely positive about Omar yeah. Figueroa. Absolutely, absolutely. He's a really sympathetic character, and I wish him well. Um, the co-feature uh, was easy the fight of the night. Alberto Pueyo against Batir Ahmedov for a 140-pound belt. Really entertaining style clash. Relentless pressure, pup fighter and body puncher. Um, Ahmedov uh, against the longer, leaner boxer counter puncher Pueyo. And after 12 tremendous rounds, it really came down to what the judges liked. And I, and I think it was it felt that way as the fight was unfolding, didn't it? It's like, yeah. oh, you know... What are you most like here? That That's going to really uh, affect how you score this fight. One of them favored Akhmedov, 115-113. But the other two have Pueyo up, 117-111, which I thought was a little wide, to be honest. Um, improving the Dominican's record to 21-0 with 10 KOs, while Akhmedov falls to 9-2 with 8 KOs, his second hard luck title loss. Uh, I imagine you like the scoring, as it helped you in our picks competition, uh, and it got you a win on your best bet of Pueyo to win as a plus 165 underdog, yet more pizzas um, <laughs> yes. flowing out of the uh, Raskin household. Uh, but did you actually agree with the decision and what stood out to you in the fight? I actually did agree with the decision, although I can't rule out that my rooting interest could have affected my scoring in some close rounds. But I had it 115-113 for Pueyo. Felt yeah, anything right. up to 116-112 either way was just fine. The 1711s were a tad wide, but it was such a which-style-do-you-favor fight. Yeah. I guess two judges just favored the flashy counters of Pueyo round after round over the body shots and pressure of Akhmedov. Um, Showtime's Twitter poll favored Akhmedov 63 to 37%, but let's remember that those folks are seeing Steve Farhood's scorecard, exactly. which favored Akhmedov. So there, there's no control group here. It's a contaminated sample. Um, in the end, it was a coin flip decision, and I feel really bad for Akhmedov. That's two losing coin flips now. In a fair world, he wins one of these two, and, and he's in a whole different place in terms of earning power if he's 10-1 and one instead of 9-2. and two. Um, You mentioned my best bet, uh, Pueyo, at plus 165. By the time I actually bet it, it was plus 180. That's a difference of one or two pizza toppings. Um, (laughs) Also, also I put a a pizza and a half on Pueyo by decision at plus 380. I was was feeling it. I I, I bet a little bigger than usual, and and it paid off. I also had a tiny bet on the draw at 16 to 1. So at the end of the fight, I was fine with anything but an Akhmedov win. Um, But... 
Yeah, I'm I'm really running out of room in my house for all these pizzas. Um, but uh, <laughs> enough enough about the the scoring and my betting and all that. Observations from the fight. This was fun as hell. Just yeah. a great clash of styles. It never had a sustained lull. Toward the end, I think it was entering the twelfth round. Al Bernstein called it a fight of attrition. Absolutely, that's what it became, and it remained about even even when that's what it became. You, you can't say yeah. either guy wanted it more. They both wanted it. They both kept fighting their asses off to the final bell. Uh, Akhmedov's body work was spectacular, especially that run in the sixth round where he just chased poor Pueyo around the ring, throwing nonstop body punches for a brief stretch. I loved Pueyo's punch variety, but somebody is going to make him pay someday for throwing that uppercut from about six inches too far yes. away. Um, and one last little thing that I enjoyed during the pre-fight instructions. I've never seen this one before. The ref said, touch him yep. if you like. Very passive. And I must DM'd you about that, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, can, you can sense by now the sort of things that are going to tickle my fancy. That was one of them. So he says, touch him if you like. Akhmedov turns away and doesn't touch gloves. And Pueyo made a face kind of like a character mugging for the camera on the office. Um, I don't know. I, I, I got a little kick out of that whole thing. Yeah. Um, now, Pueyo was not the only unbeaten Dominican fighter to claim a belt on Saturday night. He was joined by his good friend, Hector Garcia, who we watched dominate Chris Colbert in a major upset earlier this year. He put on a masterful boxing display once again to snag a 130-pound belt from Roger Gutierrez, fading a bit late, but winning by scores of 117-111 twice and 118-110. Gutierrez falls to 26-4-1 with 20 KOs, and Garcia is now 16-0 with 10 KOs. And I wonder if this changes the narrative around Colbert at all. Maybe he didn't underperform at all. Maybe Garcia is just that good. What do you think, Kieran? Is Garcia an elite 130-pounder who just happened to be a well-kept secret? And give me any other thoughts on Garcia and Gutierrez. I mean, how is this guy hiding out of sight for so long? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I guess in hindsight, it was ridiculous, given that he was an Olympian. Um, and as he said in his post-fight interview, in the pros, nobody knew me, but in the amateurs, people knew my name. Um, and he's a real example to boxers about the need to be ready. Uh, you never know when that call is going to come. And when it does come... Take your shot, man. That's what he did when Gutierrez couldn't face Colbert because of COVID. It's what Lippinets just did as well. Um, and, and look at look at where he is right now. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about the word elite, but I will say that if Shakur Stevenson beats Consis out and then moves up, you could actually argue that Garcia has done as much as anybody to be considered the best 130-pounder in his absence, right? I mean, Valdez... His stock is down after the, the beating that Stevenson gave to him and the fact that he got away with one against Concesau. Yeah. We'll see how Concesau does against Stevenson. You, you know, Garcia all of a sudden is in that mix to, to argue that he is the best. Um, what I like about him, he's a pressure fighter. Yes, but he's a technically proficient pressure fighter. He, he, you know, he sets up his punches. He doesn't overcommit. He doesn't suffocate his own offense. He works in and out of range nicely. Um, he can adapt to his opponent. He didn't use quite the same approach against Gutierrez as he did against Colbert, for example. Um, there's quite a lot to like about Hector Garcia. Uh, I don't know that it entirely lets Colbert off the hook, um, as he is theoretically a better talent of whom more is expected than Gutierrez. I mean, let's be honest. There's a reason why this is the one fight on the card we both picked exactly correctly. Right. Um, we recognize that Gutierrez was not a particularly strong title holder. 
But Colbert also did have the disadvantage of surprise that Gutierrez did not. Um, the, the other thing, you know, with Colbert is, you know, Gutierrez at least did keep trying to win down the stretch, whereas Colbert folded down the stretch and, and admitted as much. Um, but yeah, look, it does give Colbert some breathing space. It does suggest that his loss to Garcia is something that he can learn from rather than a reason to write him off. But Hector Garcia, you know, it's so funny. Like for years, since we were doing the HBO podcast, we've been talking about this 130-pound weight class and there have been folks coming and going, the Muras, the um, the Varguses, the Burchelts. Mm-hmm. It just feels like this is a weight class that keeps producing interesting and, and really good new talents. And Hector Garcia is the latest of them, I think. Yeah. Um, now, there's a particular fighter that Garcia bears a physical resemblance to. I wonder if you were having the same thought at, at all that I was. Um, can can you by chance guess who uh, who I was thinking of as I was watching him, just physically? Mm. The, the hint the hint is it's a friend of yours. Ishe. Yes, <laughs> there oh, it is. Interesting. You know, s- similar skin tone. I feel like Ishe usually wore red trunks. Uh, the shaved head, the beard. The shaved head and the beard. Yeah. W- was Ishe a southpaw? I can't remember. No. He wasn't. Okay. All right. So that that part doesn't match up. But I'm looking at him. I'm like, who's he reminding me of? And then it, and then it hit me. He kind of looks like Ishe, you know, from when the cameras pulled pulled way back. Uh, so there's my <laughs> random observation of the moment. There. There you go. Well, there you go. Um, the opening bout of the show provided some unexpected drama as a multi-time podcast guest and highly regarded 140-pound prospect Brandon Lee got drilled with a perfect counter right hand from Will Madera in the third round, went down hard and was lucky that the punch came late in the round. But he did get through it. He recovered and he retook control to win by unanimous scores of 98-91 as he went the 10-round distance for the second straight fight after previously stopping 15 opponents in a row. Uh, Lee is now 26-0 with 22 KOs. Madeira's record drops to 17-2-3 with 10 KOs. Eric, did Madeira miss an opportunity for a massive upset here? Um, And would you say you're more impressed with Lee for the way he responded to getting dropped hard? Or concerned after these last couple fights? that maybe he isn't the mega prospect we thought he was. Hmm. That's a tough call. I'm definitely feeling both things. Um, I guess I'd say the slightly stronger feeling is the concern, the the doubt that he's a talented guy, excellent power, good ability, but that maybe the ceiling isn't quite what it looked like when he was blowing everyone out. Brandon fights with his chin too high in the air sometimes. There's not a ton of variety in his offensive attack. Let's hope he can keep learning and tighten up his defense. I do expect this experience will make him better, but he does need to keep improving if he's going to go to the top. He's not the whole package yet, uh, but you do also have to be impressed with how he got through being almost flattened. Uh, he kept trying to bounce around and get his legs all the way back, which was the right thing to do there. He held a bit when he needed to. He got through it. it wasn't quite Fury getting dropped by Wilder in their first fight, but... It was some percentage of the way there in terms of what a serious shot it was and how badly hurt he was. He, he really crumpled to the canvas. Um, so huge credit to him for getting through that. Um, Madera, we said going in that he's a counterpuncher, and indeed he is. Uh, <laughs> did he miss an opportunity? I guess, but it's not like he took his foot off the gas at right. all. He did what he could, but you know, Lee had the one-minute break. He recovered not too deep into the next round. And when he wasn't walking into a perfect punch, he was too young, fast, athletic, 
too strong for Madeira. Um, by the way, I, I do kind of wish the Jake Paul audience had gotten to see this fight on the card and it was originally yes. scheduled for. Um, seeing Lee get dropped like that and then recover to win could have turned a few mega casuals into people interested in watching more boxing after seeing a fight like that. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, um, where after Brandon you know, went the distance with Zachary Ochoa, um, that was when you were gone and Barry right. Tompkins and I did the podcast. And and we were talking there because Barry had done the commentary for that fight, asking him whether he felt that Brandon maybe needs another voice in the corner mm. to help him develop that into that next stage. And he thought that maybe he does and that maybe everybody involved is aware of that too and, and thinks the same because it's a really interesting time now, isn't it, for Brandon Lee? It's like... I, I'm certainly not going to say, oh, this is as good as he's going to get and he's not getting any better because he's right. still beating these guys, right. um, even if he's not blowing them out. But it is like, yes, can he, he – is he in danger of plateauing? Can he move up that level learning from these fights that he is still winning? Um, and is there something else, some added wrinkle um that that they can they can add to the team there to help him make that next level i'm i'm certainly not ready to to give to give up on brandon lee by any means um but yeah there's some work to be done if he's gonna make it up to to that very top level i think yeah i think you're absolutely right that he's at that point where another voice in the corner another guy to teach him some things in in camp it, it might be the right time for that um, all right, so let's catch up on our picks competition. Uh, you led 59-58 going into this card. We each scored one point, uh, picking Brandon Lee by KO. Uh, so your late switch of a KO round pick proved immaterial when it went the distance. We each got the maximum three points for Garcia by unanimous decision, as you said. That Pueo scoring was a big swing my mm -hmm. way. I picked him by unanimous decision and got two points, whereas you got no points for your Akhmedov KO 8 pick. And in the main event, I had Lipinets KO 11. You had Lipinets by decision. So I got two to your one there. So the updated scores, Raskin 66, Mulvaney 64. So my plan is coming to fruition. <laughs> yes. Everything is falling perfectly into place and you're falling into my trap again. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Maybe that I want you to believe that I'm falling into your trap again and you're falling into my trap. Did you ever think about that? And that's that? exactly what I want you to believe. <laughs> Boy, this, we could make this podcast really long going back and forth on this. And it and it might be an improvement. <laughs> yeah, it might. Um, one other fight from the weekend worth a quick comment before we move on. On ESPN, Emmanuel Navarrete found himself in a tough fight after 10 months out of the ring. Fell behind on the scorecards against Eduardo Baez in defense of his featherweight belt, uh, but scored a one-punch left hook to the body KO in round six to pull off the dramatic win. Eric, quick analysis of this one. Well, I, I wouldn't freak out over Navarrete falling behind. Baez is a solid fighter, and he was winning, but he wasn't dominating. That said, Navarrete looked a little off, a little slower than usual. I think his layoff, and particularly blowing up in weight during that time, definitely affected him. If this is how he's going to look at 126 moving forward, then I think it's time to move up to 130. But, you know, maybe his weight struggles were all about the layoff. Anyway, great liver shot, and such an unusual reaction to it. Baez went down on like a two second delay. You see that every so often with a body shot. Mm -hmm. But then he went to his knee and looked at the ref like he was going to be okay, but then couldn't move. And yeah. around the count of 10, fully collapsed to the canvas and then was in more pain the next 30 seconds or so than he'd been in 10 seconds earlier. So 
these boxers, man, it, it is just a whole different breed of human that yes. agrees to that potential outcome when they go to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for Navarrete, a 10-month layoff is worse than it is for a lot of other people. That's right. Like six fights for him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move along to this week's news. And our main event concerns a former pound-for-pound champ who is poised to return to action. As his countryman, Oleksandr Usyk, was readying for the Joshua fight, Vasily Lomachenko left Ukraine this week and touched down in Los Angeles on Tuesday to begin training for what will be his first fight in 10 months, an October bout against lightweight up-and-comer Jermaine Ortiz. The exact date hasn't been determined yet. October 22nd and 29th are reportedly both under consideration. Lomachenko, you'll recall, was near a deal to fight George Cambosos for the lineal title earlier this year, but when Russia invaded Ukraine, he stayed home rather than leave to train for that fight. Ortiz is coming off a pair of good wins over Jamel Herring and Nahir Albright. Kieran, how do you like this as a comeback fight for Lomachenko? And with Loma now 34 years old, does this feel to you like the start of his last major run? Or or is it too soon for me to be wondering about such things? Yeah, I, I think it almost certainly is the start of, of that final run. Uh, even Lomachenko can't go on forever. And his body's shown signs of, of breaking down. He was injured going into that Jorge Linares bow, um, the one that we somehow managed to forget about a few weeks back. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, he needed shoulder surgery after the Teofimo Lopez bow. Um, yeah, and he's going to come increasingly up against guys who are so much younger and so much fresher. Uh, he's got the advantage over a lot of other boxes approaching you know the athletic equivalent of middle age because he has this economy of movement and, and a tremendous spatial awareness that will compensate for and a tremendous ring brain that will compensate for some of the inevitable like physical changes um but at some point you know he'll start to lose hand and foot speed if he hasn't already um but look i don't know but that's not to say that oh my god you know the clock is super ticking here just that this is probably the beginning of, of of the last phase i don't know how long this final phase could last maybe he's, he could still last a few years um maybe it's a couple of fights maybe it all comes unstuck against jermaine ortiz although I, I i rather doubt it um i do think it's a very good comeback fight for him it, it's it's a tough fight um given everything the fact that he's not only been out of the ring but pursuing a very different path indeed um like you said ortiz is going to be full of confidence and riding high especially you know after his last couple of wins so but, you know, Lomachenko's never been one to take his time or gradually ramp up his opposition, has yeah. he? So um, I, I'm not sure what Lomachenko's goals would be at this point in his career, whether there are specific things that he wants to achieve that he hasn't achieved yet. It would be difficult to imagine what those are. Maybe it's just he just wants to keep fighting because he likes it and he's an exceptionally good at it and he wants to add to his accomplishments and bank balance before he retires. But... um of course, like Alexander Usyk, he's got a country to fight for now um, as well. But I don't know. I'm just glad that we're going to see him back. And I hope we're going to see him back for quite a few more fights because, you know, I've never made any secret of how very highly I regard Vasily Lomachenko and what he brings to the ring. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah. And this overlaps with what you were saying that, that... I just love that his idea of a tune-up is to take on an undefeated 26-year-old right? opponent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a fairly crowded news undercard uh, with several notable fights being made and in one case being postponed. Uh, a fight we've discussed a couple times already, Deontay Wilder versus Robert Hellenius, is now official for October 15th at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And the co-feature has been announced, pairing two former titleists at 168 pounds, Caleb Plant versus Anthony Durrell. Uh, a deal has been reached for the mandatory fight 
between Leewood and Leo Santa Cruz. That bout is expected to take place either November 5th or 12th. Uh, we have an opponent for Sebastian Fondora in the October 8th Showtime Championship Boxing main event. He's taking on 34-1 and Carlos Ocampo. In advance of an expected third fight with Chocolatito Gonzalez, Juan Francisco Estrada will return to action September 3rd versus R.G. Cortez in Hermosillo, Mexico, with Design to Stream. And after her scheduled fight on the Jake Paul Haseem Rockman Jr. card got scrapped, Amanda Serrano will return September 24th on the Joe Joyce Joe Parker undercard against Sarah Mahfoud. Uh, and just as we were getting ready to record, one of the Alphabet bodies announced that Dimitri Bivol will defend his light heavyweight title against Zerdo Ramirez in the United Arab Emirates on November 5th. Uh, the one fight that is headed in the opposite direction, also a light heavyweight, Artur Betabiev against Anthony Yard has been postponed, boxing scene reported, because Betabiev is still recovering from minor knee surgery, and Dan Rayfield reports that he most likely won't be ready to fight again until early 2023. Eric, thoughts on any of these items? Well, there's not a single fight in that bunch that I flat out dislike. Uh, yeah. I do dislike the news that Better We Have isn't fighting again this year, uh, probably, uh, that he'll have fought just once in 2022. That sucks, uh, especially with him about to turn 38 in January. The clock is ticking on him. Uh, so that that is bummer news. But all those fights, uh, Plant Durrell, solid, competitive, meaningful fight, though one that has the potential to be less than thrilling. Uh, mm -hmm. Bivol Zerto, perfectly solid, not quite mouthwatering, but whatever the level just shy of mouthwatering is, right. I'd say that lands there. <laughs> um, Wood versus Santa Cruz. If we aren't getting Wood Conlon too, this is as good as any option I can think of. This is a marketable, intriguing fight. And it'll be telling as to whether Santa Cruz is still an elite fighter at 34. Yep. It's impossible to know after the Javante loss at a higher weight and then just one tune-up type fight in the past almost two years. Uh, Ocampo is a credible opponent for Fundora. A step down from Erickson Lubin, certainly, but a credible fighter. His only loss came against Errol Spence, albeit by first-round KO. Um, Estrada versus Argy Cortez. I think we're all rooting for the same thing here. Estrada yep. wins and suffers no cuts or injuries. Yep. Um, and then Serrano. I think on paper, this is a slightly tougher fight against Mahfoud so. than Brenda Carabajal would have been. But it still should be easy for Serrano because Serrano is the pound for pound number one female fighter in the world. Sorry, Katie Taylor stands. I'm spitting truth here. <laughs> um, we have a light weekend of fights ahead of us. Uh, not much to preview. For the serious fight fans, Saturday on ESPN from Tulsa, a solid pairing of veteran junior welterweights as Jose Sniper Pedraza takes on Richard Comey. And on that undercard, three notable heavyweights in action, Jared Big Baby Anderson, Richard Torres Jr., and F.A. Ajagba. Meanwhile, for the not-at-all-serious fight fans, on DAZN pay-per-view, six rounds of cruiserweight um, boxing, I guess, as KSI, whom I have only heard of because he was Jake Paul's first opponent, takes on someone or something called Swarms. I should maybe use the internet to learn who these people are, but look, we have a limited amount of time on this earth. I have to draw the line somewhere, and this is where I've chosen to draw it. Uh, Kieran, give me... 20 minutes of in-depth X's and O's breakdown of KSI versus Swarms. Or don't. Up to you. But any thoughts on Pedraza versus Kami? My in-depth analysis of KSI versus Swarms is available on my premium subscription-only podcast. <laughs> Smart. Available to anyone who makes a one-time payment of $1,000, although I will need a minimum of 100 subscribers to make it cost-effective. <laughs> Good business um, strategy. I 
<laughs> exactly. I do like Pedraza versus Comey. It's a it's a fun fight. And while it isn't quite a loser leaves time match, uh, a concept we discussed at some length in the Great Deleted Collectors <laughs> yes. Edition episode from last week, uh, it's certainly a loser becomes less relevant match. Um, a lot on the line, I think, for both guys. Both men have come up short at the very highest level, but the winner will still be in the mix for top 10 type contests and possibly even title shots. Well, the loser may find himself having to be in crossroads fights against uh, up and comers next. Um, uh, but, uh, but a really good fight. I think I probably slightly favor sniper as I feel like Comey two of his, you know, his last two defeats, they've not just been defeats, but they've been pretty heavy ones. And I suspect you'll end up wishing that either the referee or his corner had indeed stopped that contest with Lomachenko the way Lomachenko was urging them to, because he, Took quite a thumping in that fight. Um, Okay, it's time for my top five list. Uh, Some time ago, as a nod to the era of the Four Kings, I dubbed the quartet of young lightweight talent comprised of Tank Davis, Ryan Garcia, Teofimo Lopez, and Devin Haney as the Four Princes. Since then, they've distinguished themselves from Hagler, Hearns, Duran, and Leonard by resolutely failing to come anywhere near (laughs) fighting each other. Um, And since then, at least one, and perhaps two, have moved up from lightweight, which doesn't exactly increase the chances of them doing so anytime soon. Still, they generally keep talking about wanting to do it, and we live in hope. Um, There are six possible Prince versus Prince matchups, but you also enabled me to sprinkle some non-Princes in there if I wished, and spoiler alert, I wished. Uh, Also, in what will be a surprise to nobody who's been paying attention over the last couple of years that we've been doing this, I cheated. My top five (laughs) list is, in fact, a top six. Um, With all that said, here goes. Uh, Joint number five is Ryan Garcia against either Teofimo Lopez or Javante Davis. Um, It's something that... You know, it's probably out of them all is the one that's been most talked about by some of the potential participants. Although Garcia's been talking about it a lot, Lopez a bit, and Davis barely at all. Um, does any of that talking mean anything? Not necessarily. Um, I suspect Garcia and Oscar De La Hoya are perfectly happy to keep just keep talking about it. Uh, if I'm top rank, I'm probably happy to keep Lopez fights in house. But for the purposes of this, we're just all going to assume there are no obstacles and that all of these fights could get made. Uh, and I happen to think both of these would be pretty interesting. Um, and in fact, I kind of feel that of all the different possibilities, these might be among the ones that are actually the most likely to happen, not least because Garcia actually brings quite a lot to the table from the prize fighting perspective. Um I've been high on Garcia's talents for a while, but there have also been questions about his temperament and his focus, and all the above has been increasingly visible. Um, sometimes you wonder if he, the young man reads his Instagram fan comments more than focusing on his on his task. But I And I would have him as an underdog in both of these matchups, but he's got fast hands. He has real power. He looked excellent last time out. He has length over both of these guys, but... Not only that, my goodness, he'd bring a lot of attention to the matchups and to the sport because of his massive following. Uh, I think that either fight would be a real action fight, too. Uh, Garcia would be looking to press the action in both. I think either of these would be fun. Wow, that is quite a cheat. Um, yeah. I feel like I need to punish you for this. How about your the penalty that you must uh, pay for cheating in this regard is on the next podcast, you have to do a karaoke performance of Spin Doctor's Two Princes twice to make four princes. What do you think? I reject that. <laughs> and honestly, so do our listeners. Yeah, I guess so. I yeah. just, 
I just thought it would be a fun punishment to tie in with this. But, <laughs> but um, not really, because people would have to listen to it. You'd have to listen to it. Yes, but it would be torture for you, and That's that true. takes precedent. The people don't have to listen. The important thing is that you have to suffer through performing. I guess I'd have to listen, at least. But mm, yeah, there anyway, you go. Uh, these, these fights were both on my list. I had uh, Davis Gar- Garcia at number three and uh, Lopez Garcia at number four. Both outstanding fights. Uh, I mean, this is going to be the case with anything you put on your list involving any yes. of these fighters. We like any of these matchups. Yes. So uh, we're in the same ballpark here. You didn't you didn't put my number one in your five uh, in your tied for five spot. But uh, these are certainly among the top five or so uh, options that uh, that you can have here. So, all right. No more cheating the rest of the way, I hope. Correct. No more cheating the rest okay. of the way. Um, and yes, to, to, to emphasize your point, none of these potential matchups suck. I will take every single one of them. It's yep. just that, you know, if you're going to have five, especially if you're going to include some non-princes in there too, then, you know, there's only so many to put in here. Well, specifically six into the top five. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, number four does actually include a non-prince, and I put Tank Davis against Shakur Stevenson. Um, Stevenson hasn't even stepped up to 135 yet, uh, but it sounds like he probably will. He's talked already about the prospect of his fight with Constantin being his last at 130. Um, oh my God. The idea of two young, undefeated Americans, one from New Jersey, one from Maryland, meeting up for lightweight bragging rights is pretty exciting as it stands when you add in the fact that these are not just two young undefeated Americans, they're both immensely skilled. Uh, they both have really interesting offensive output and terrific defense. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of mouthwatering. Uh, the quality of the boxing in this fight would be breathtaking at times defense as well as offense. There's a very slight markdown because styles make fights. And these, there's a possibility that these two guys' styles might not mesh super well, that it might be a lot more emphasis on the defense than the offense, but I don't think so. Uh, it could be a purist's fight, but I, I think it just just the skill involved would elevate it. I, I definitely would want to see it. Yeah, I love this one. This is my number two, and it's my highest fight featuring a non-prince uh, okay. that, that can be made with any of these guys. Um, it was funny, though, as you were sort of rolling out the where they're from, you know, a, a guy from New Jersey against a guy from Maryland. Unfortunately, it passes through my mind. Oh, so this fight will land in Saudi Arabia then. <laughs> um, but uh, no, you know what's right between New Jersey and Maryland is uh, Philadelphia. Uh, exactly. Philadelphia. So uh, I will play host to this at the uh, the the house that uh, Pizza built. Uh, we will. Uh, we, we'll, I'll, I'll host this one in my backyard. Uh, let's do it, Gervonta Davis and Shakur Stevenson. But for all the reasons you said, just a tremendously intriguing matchup between two guys hitting their prime with unbelievable talent. Yeah, we know what dinner would be at the media room too, don't we? <laughs> I guess we do. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be it'll be a little old and left over by then. But. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, for number three, I was going to put Teofimo Lopez against Josh Taylor on the grounds that if Lopez is indeed a fully fledged 140 pounder now, we want to see him take on the best. And that's Taylor. But brings a little off the rose of that matchup because Taylor should have lost to Jack Catterall. And we also honestly don't yet know how good Lopez is going to be at 140. So that's a smidge premature. And it feels like the kind of, it felt to me like the kind of matchup that an earnest, serious podcaster would pick. And being neither of those things, I decided to table this one for a little while. I thought that it's always the danger with these lists, they become a bit too serious. I decided to throw into the middle of this a completely fun 
matchup. Um, that doesn't necessarily have the most enormous of stakes, but it would be one that if it were announced, you think, oh my God, I hadn't thought about that. God, I want to watch that fight. And I wouldn't have thought about it until Saturday night. And now I do. Teofimo Lopez against Sergei Lipinets. Look, um, as we talked about, Lipinets is not quite good enough to beat the very best. Um, and at least prior to Cambosis, Lopez appeared to be among the very, very best. And, and while, But while he's still piecing himself back together a little bit, Lopez, while there's still remaining some question marks about him, while he's being led in the corner just by his father... This wouldn't necessarily be a slam dunk. We know what Lipinets is going to try to do to, to, to Lopez. While atop of his game, Lopez should have plenty um, to walk him into shots, to counter him, to, to quite possibly stop him. If this fight were announced, as things are at the moment, with how Lopez is and how Lipinets is, if tomorrow this got announced, come on, we'd be pretty excited about it, wouldn't we? We'd think this is a fun fight. Yeah, this is an interesting pivot. Certainly something I, I hadn't thought about. I, I, for what it's worth, I do have Lopez versus Josh Taylor as my number five. Okay. Um, I like this fight a lot. I'd be excited for it. I find it a bit uh, ridiculous to put it ahead of the fights that you've put at four and five, four and co five. Um, I, I can't get as geeked for this one as I can for those. But just as a fun fight and an intriguing fight right now with Lipinets looking good and Lopez a bit of a mystery as to exactly where he stands right now, it feels very competitive. Good fight. Wouldn't wouldn't have cracked my top five even if I've thought of it. But uh, that's what it's your list, not mine. That's right. That's my top six list. Exactly. <laughs> yes, top five um, and a half. Number two, I've got Devin Haney against Tank Davis. Um, and I realized as I was putting this list together and that I didn't actually initially have anything for Haney. And, and there's a reason for that. I, I think he's the least compelling of the four, frankly. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't get as excited as a lot of people did in advance over the Cambosis fight. And, and while he was exceptionally impressive in that bout, as we talked about, he also never really went for it. Um, he's a bit of an enigma. He can be exciting. He can be diffident pedestrian. Um, either way, he's technically excellent. Um, and the odd thing is, he might actually be the guy who has the beating of all the others. Um, and I do think we'll see the best of him against opponents who can force him to fight. And the one that I most want to see him fight is Davis. I like the clash of styles. I, I think probably Davis is the most exciting and compelling and perhaps the best of the four. But I also think that Haney might have that nightmare style for him. Haney's going to want to try and keep him at range. But the kind of pressure that Davis brings is such that Haney's just never going to be able to do so comfortably. Haney's going to have to fight. He's going to have to be exciting, whether he wants to be or not in this fight. And, you know, the sense of jeopardy here for both men would be very real the clash of styles would be really interesting i feel that it would be a tense fight with the outcome uncertain for as long as it lasts and and you know i had to think about it a little bit because i didn't want to do this list without devin haney I, I thought it would just be too jarring and then when i sat down and thought about it i'm like no i want to see this fight i think the clash of styles is interesting i think like i said haney just might be the guy with the nightmare star matchup for everybody else on this list yeah, so I didn't end up putting any Haney fights in my top five. I had two that sat just outside of it. Um, but interestingly, this wasn't one of those two. I, I thought uh, Haney-Lopez I had just outside my top five. And uh, Haney versus non-Prince Vasily Lomachenko I find mm. uh, quite fascinating. This one, 
I a little bit worried that Devin Haney's route to trying to win this fight is to try to make the first ever boring Tank Davis fight. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not sure quite how these styles match up and how it would play out. Um, I, it's certainly intriguing, and I definitely do not disagree that it might just turn out Devin Haney is the last man standing at the end of all of this, um, that he's that he's got the beating of, of all these guys, possibly. Um, again, not a not a bad possible fight you can make in the bunch, but your number two did not quite crack my my list here. I'm intrigued to see where my number one lasts, uh, lands on your list, if it does at all. It's Tank Davis against Vasily Lomachenko. Um, okay. I know that Lomachenko has fought one of the four already and come off second best. Um, and Lopez will always deserve immense credit for winning that fight, and especially for making that 12th round stand that enabled him to secure the contest and the scorecards. That something was off about Lomachenko that night, as much as Lopez fought an excellent fight. Had he got rolling earlier, I suspect the outcome would have been different. And as we know, Lomachenko went and had shoulder surgery afterwards. Um, the fact that Lopez has already beaten Lomachenko means that there's very little incentive for Davis to face him too, right? I mean, what's the upside for him? If he beats him, Lopez can say he got to him first. And if he doesn't, well, there you go. Um, look, as we discussed earlier, Lomachenko is probably on the back nine, but he has the ability to hit an eagle any time. Um, what would be fascinating about this matchup is that whereas Haney would want to try and keep away from Davis and fight at range, Lomachenko is going to fight him much more in the pocket. It would be 12 rounds or less of mostly close range action of two guys looking to pivot around each other, land, land punches, move out the way, counter and lead. I think it would be an absolutely fascinating high speed all action uh, center of the ring chess match. Uh, two very good offensive and defensive boxes, both making each other miss, both landing leads and counters. The disquality on display here would be immense, but I think it would have to happen soon before Lomachenko does show any signs of decline if he's going to do that. I recognize it might be less exciting for a lot of people um, precisely because Lomachenko did already lose to Lopez. But as you said, it's my list, and I have a, I continue to have just a really high regard for Lomachenko, and I have a really high regard for Tank Davis. I think he's a really excellent defensive boxer as well as a terrific puncher. I think this would be a fantastic matchup. I would salivate all over this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I cannot uh, disagree with any of that, although uh, I had this as this is the one other just outside my top five okay. fight that I jotted down uh, that, that didn't quite make my list but i i love it it's a it's a great matchup for all the reasons you said um but so so we've touched on everything that i had on my list except my number one didn't uh didn't come up at all it is lopez davis yes that is correct um a, a prince versus prince matchup that i love from a perspective of these are two really dynamic explosive fighters and i'm not sure who would win and I feel like the build-up, the press conferences oh my God, would be yes. a lot of fun because they're both big personalities, um, very like clearly defined personalities too. Yes. Um, they're they're really unique individuals uh, who have their followings, and uh, I, I just think from start to finish, the build-up through the fight, I I, I love Teofimo uh, Lopez against Javante Davis, but. I love all these matchups. I, I, I can't it. complain about any possible order anyone puts any of these fights in, except maybe you having Lopez Lipic. That's a little too high for my liking. Yeah, and 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 I actually had Lopez Tank at one 
and at two at some stage and, <laughs> right. and and that's just you know and like i said i threw in i threw in lopez lipinets just for the fun of it you know um uh and with with recency bias based off saturday night but uh yeah it's just that none of these none of these matchups are bad uh at all all of them are exciting and honestly yeah flip a coin and you i'd favor one over the other uh any different time depending on what my mood was at a particular time and depending yeah. on whose highlights i'd just watched i think yeah it, it's that kind of uh, assignment where you're just it's really hard to nail down how you feel about these matchups when there's so little separating them but uh amazingly we managed to not quite agree on the placement of anything which is very That's unlike amazing. us yeah what is the um over under on how many of these matchups actually happen Oof. so all time so there's no time limit on it just before Correct. these guys are all retired so out of yeah the... we're assuming hopefully not on the senior tour but you know yeah right. let's i don't know yeah and, no time limit. and you're just talking of the prince versus prince the six possible prince versus prince pairings how many i happen? guess actually yes let's let's if, do if that. i Is if that i what... were the odds maker i guess i'd set the line somewhere around like 2.5 is probably yeah. the tough over under right now that sounds exactly right to me, actually. But if and someone I set... might take the under at this, oh, rate. see, I was going to say, if someone set that line, I think I would go go ahead and bet the over at least. I'm a teeny bit more optimistic. Than oh, you, good. But... Okay, that would if we get over, if we get the over, if that's the line and we get the over, we'll we'll have done all right. It's not four kings territory, but that's why they're the four princes, <laughs> right? And what, once we've gotten this far into the four princes era and we're stuck at zero, <laughs> zero fights, you know, anything over two point five sounds pretty great. Exactly. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with all the KSI versus Forms post fight you can handle, again, as long as you pay the premium upgrade fee, uh, <laughs> and much more besides. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>